Welcome back, listeners. Morse code here. Today, I am outside the bunker with a high-powered microphone. You know the little satellite-looking ones that you can listen from like really, really far away? I'm using this to listen to the inside of the bunker without having to squeeze past all the security Josh has. David Meerman Scott of The Fresh Spot came off of Josh's plane today, and we are patiently awaiting the interview. It's a beautiful day, laying in the grass, under the warm sun, nice breeze, perfect weather to invade someone's right to privacy. David, thanks so much for uh, for joining me in the lair. It's an exciting time for you because you got a new book coming out and I definitely want to, uh, I want, what I want to do is I want to, because nobody's listening to us. Uh, I really want to know the real, uh, you know, uh, you know, the real meat behind maybe what couldn't get into the book or kind of what prompted uh, you to pursue this. Uh, Cause you've had two very, very successful books um, that have become part of the lexicon. And, and so I've got a notebook, full, ready to take some notes, if you don't mind, because uh, I, I really look at you um, as uh, it really is someone that's really directed me in my life. Um, oh, thank you, so Josh. I bought the new rules of uh, PR marketing a long time ago when it came out. And that was a part of my decision. Now, first off, I, I my back was kind of against the wall. So when I launched Savings Angel, like, 10 years, 10, 11 years ago, like I had no money. Like, so I'm relying on like guerrilla PR, guerrilla marketing. Uh, and uh, I couldn't pay for advertising. So the only thing I could do was just become a brand journalist and just say, listen, I'm just going to become a subject matter expert. And I know I'm not going to be able to do a lot of selling when I go on these stages or when I go on the radio, TV, blah, 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 blah. But maybe if I give enough value, people will, there, maybe people are smart enough that they'll, or, you know, I'll say something to inspire them to, uh, to, to kind of take that next step. But could you kind of, in, in, when someone asks you to kind of sum up, what are the new rules of PR marketing? Like, how do you, how do you explain that? Sure, of course. And it's, thanks for having me on, Josh. I really appreciate it. I'm glad no one else is listening in so we can really talk in, uh, talk, talk in, um, in a way that we can really get down and dirty here. So yeah. um, I spent um, 15 years as a sales and marketing guy. And the rules when I was doing that um, in the 1990s, early 2000s was you had to pay for advertising. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no choice really because you didn't have an option. You had to pay to advertise magazine, radio, television, billboards, direct mail, um, um, trade show booth space, whatever it is. Um, and then the other rule was that you had to convince the media to write or broadcast about you. Uh, uh, and another rule was that you had to have an army of salespeople or um, people in your shop or whatever it is to deal one-on-one with other people. So I realized that um, with the rise of the web and the rise of social media, that those are no longer true anymore. Those rules yeah. are no longer the rules. So the new rules of marketing and PR, as I describe them, are that you can create the kind of content that will reach people. You can create a blog or a YouTube channel or a podcast like we're doing right now or, um, or um, you get become active on social media. So in a sense, you can control your own destiny. And I was really lucky because my uh, early career was spent in the 
uh, real-time news business. I worked for companies like Dow Jones and Thomson Reuters prior to the web, and that gave me an unfair advantage in terms of how content is put together and created and how real-time content works. So when the web came around, 1995, roughly, um, social media starting roughly 2005-ish, I already had a head start. So that yeah. allowed me to write this book, and, and I was able to see something that really nobody else saw. And that book um, originally came out 2007. It's now in the sixth edition. It's been published in 29 languages, and um, it's, uh, it's sold 400,000 copies just in English. So it's really yeah. become a remarkable um, uh, a remarkable thing for me in my life to be able to have had this crazy international bestseller. You know, what I see with still far too many PR agencies and PR departments, PR professionals, is this idea, and, and I can speak on this as a syndicated newspaper columnist, I get bad pitches mm. nearly every day. Yeah. And they have absolutely nothing to do with what I would ever write about. They're and terrible. it's just written in a, you know, uh, we just launched version 3.14 X of our new product. And trust us, this is really important news. <laughs> it's like, it's what? Not, it's, yeah. No, no, nobody cares. Right. You know, yeah. what it is, what it is, is that um, there is so little personalization going on right now. Mm. Um, and I get those pitches as well every single day. And, uh, and you probably get way more than I do, but I get these pitches and it's clear that they've just copied and pasted or worse. They have a, a list of a thousand people. They're sending the exact yeah. same message. Oh, to. that's exactly uh, it. And they all get deleted. I've, I've probably in my career gotten 10,000 of those pitches. Yeah. And every single one has been deleted. You know, what a, what a waste of cyberspace. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think worse is that it, it reflects negatively on who, the person who's doing the outreach and the brand itself. Oh, yeah. And, and I feel bad. I mean, I feel bad for the brand because the brand is probably paying this pro professional, quote unquote, uh, you know, big money. And I'm like, man, this is the best I got. So, you know, when people ask me if the old way of doing PR works, I said, well, it works about as well as spamming. Spamming works. It's kind of like the Jim Carrey. So you're saying there's a chance, you know? Yeah, I guess there's one out of a million, but is that really the way we want to grow a company? And I just, you know, do you think then that is, is it, is it kind of slowing down to speed up? Is it investing in relationships? Would you say that that's more in line with, with your philosophy? So I think um, that there is room for traditional um, media relations. Now I draw a very big distinction between what's public relations and what's media relations because public mm. relations is how an organization deals with the public and public relations means um, that you can deal with your public in any way you like that can include Twitter that can include face-to-face -face. there's all sorts of ways that a company can deal with the public um, but traditionally public relations has been exclusively media relations because prior to yep. 25 years ago the only way you could reach the public was through the media Mm. Problem is that most companies believe that still to be true, and they insist on trying to go through the media. But there still is a role for the traditional um, skill set of a media relations person, someone who 
knows the journalists, knows how they think, is able to help companies to craft the way they work with journalists. If they have uh, a crisis to be able to help them to work through the crisis. If they have uh, an important new news to get out there to do it in an intelligent way. But I think that that's a very small subset of public relations. Wow. Yeah, I, and, and I think that, so that's really the big evolution that's taken place over the past you know, 12, 15 years uh, is that media are no longer the gatekeepers to audiences. Correct. Um, and no you've got more than just those two, yeah. two roads to, to get to, to, to audiences. Well, look, look at the current president of the United States as we're, yeah. having, this, as we're having this conversation. All he does is get on Twitter. He's got 46 million followers and all the media follow his Twitter feed. And that, yeah. that, that can be any of us. You know, if you're clever about the people that you reach um, through social networks, you're essentially, number one, bypassing the media, and number two, training the media to look at your um, feed to be able to talk about you. And all of us can do that. It's not just something for um, President Trump. It's it's something that anybody can do. Um, he happens to be the master at it. Now, I'm not saying... <laughs> that I agree with his politics, or I do or don't agree with his politics, not a political discussion, but from the perspective of, of relating to his public, he's a master at going direct and all of us can yeah. go direct just the way that Trump does. Yeah. Um, so in terms of newsjacking, I want to kind of, kind of follow the, the timeline here as we get up to, to fanocracy. Um, so the concept behind newsjacking uh, is, is simply, and, and the way I kind of talk about this is, you know, if you're pitching a journalist or pitching the media and their response is, oh, um, well, I mean, I guess we could do a story on that. We weren't really planning on it. Uh, you know, that's not the response you want. No. And I think that the perfect response you want is like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Cause I don't know how you read my mind, uh, <laughs> wink, wink, but I, I have a, a deadline that I have to meet. You, we have to do a story on this. Thank you so much for raising your hand and saying, I can help. Is that kind of a good intro to yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's exactly right. You know, the most, the traditional public relations um, approach is that you, media relations approach is that you write a press release on your time. What news checking <laughs> does is it it's an understanding of the news cycle and every news cycle breaks in exactly the same way. The news story starts, it, it gains in interest, it has a peak and then it falls off. It's a bell-shaped curve. And so if you have have an area of expertise uh, and it doesn't matter what it is, but you have an area of expertise and we all do. We all are expert in something and you create real time content in the form of a blog post or a tweet using a hashtag or, um, or a live stream video or a YouTube video, whatever it might be, or your speak from the podium, um, whatever it might be that injects your idea into that breaking news story, then you have an opportunity to have the media as they're looking for people to quote in their stories. Um, they're so excited because they found you. I'll give you a, just a quick example. One of my favorite examples, um, Joe Payne was the CEO of a company called Eloqua and their biggest, they're a software company. Their biggest competitor was acquired a company called market to lead by Oracle and somebody tweeted, 
tweeted Joe and said, hey, your, your biggest competitor was acquired. So he went on Google and found that there was, that the news was true. It had just been released like moments before. And the only, um, the only reference to that acquisition was three sentences on the Oracle website. So wow. now you, you know, as a journalist, you you, you, you got to write a story with three sentences from the acquiring company. There's no other <laughs> out there. So what Joe did, remember, he's the CEO of the competitor. He wrote a blog post talking about what the industry is, giving quotes, giving statistics, talking about what it will like to be, to have Oracle be a part of this niche in the software world. And then he was quoted in every single story that was written about that acquisition. Remember, he's the CEO of the competitor. Then there were, he generated a million dollars worth of new business because people saw him in the stories. Then a year later, Oracle bought his company for $650 million. And I calculated that the added um, purchase price based on the revenue he generated from that blog post uh, was an extra $15 million. So I call this the $16 million blog post, two hours work of 16, and he got $16 million. Now that's obviously an outlier, but that's the that's the idea of how this concept of newsjacking works and i'm i'm so excited that newsjacking which i essentially invented about 10 years ago mm-hmm. has now become so popular that uh, it was named um uh, as a a new word in the oxford english dictionary <laughs> amazing Kind of amazing. Did, did you actually, now, were you able to buy a hardbound copy of the dictionary? It's kind of like, uh, you know, buying a copy of the newspaper when you're on the front page. Were you able to buy you a copy what? of that dictionary you know that I it printed really, in there? I need to do that. I, You know, yeah. I, I haven't because uh, it was early 2018 when that was announced. So by now it's in the print version. I, I, I got to do that. You're, it's very clever of you to, to even mention that because I didn't. And and they, they mentioned my name when... When they when they made the announcement of the new, I think there's like ten words that year that they that they that they introduced. Um, but anyway, newsjacking works. Um, it's fun. It makes marketing fun again, and um, and it's a great way to get noticed. Yeah, look at that. I it's kind of funny. I have to look on Amazon. Can you buy a dictionary? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's yeah, kind there of it is. There's the new Oxford American Dictionary. It's available hardcover, thirty four fifty nine. I'm going to have to buy one. I'm glad you you mentioned that. That's a really cool idea. That's my, it's, you know, you have a brain that's been conditioned a certain way. It's, you know, I I know you deal with that yourself. And so. Give me um, the proof point, right? Yeah. So, so David, um, so what precipitated uh, fanocracy then? So, you know, as we've been talking about, I'm one of the pioneers of the new ways to reach people through the web, through social media. Yeah. And about five years ago, I started to become a little bit, and this is because we're friends and it's just you and I talking and there's no one listening. In. <laughs> um, I, I became a little disillusioned with what I created, you know, a little mm. dis- disillusioned with the idea that that people can spam each other, you know, spam potential customers, that the media, um, you know, the media gets all of these, we talked about earlier, terrible pitches, that um, now those terrible pitches were being then turned into tweets and 
and LinkedIn uh, connection requests and that um, people are doubling down on social media rather than using it effectively and that people yeah. are building websites in order to entrap people with, with their click funnels and so on. And that, and that, um, and that the whole idea of what I thought was a really new, interesting way to reach people, and it still is, by the way, and it's not going away, has so many dark elements to it. And, and, and recently, the whole rise of artificial intelligence and bots and so on is such that, you know, when you engage with a company, it's a whole bunch of algorithms deciding yeah. what what they feed you. And you can be having a conversation on a social network and not even realize that you're connected to, connecting to a robot, to a bot. So I, 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 I am firmly in the belief that the pendulum has swung too far into the direction of superficial online communications yeah, at a time yeah. that all of us are hungry for a true human connection. And it's also happening yeah. in the political world. You know, we've become so polarized, not just our country, but all over the world. And mm-hmm. so, so I was thinking about this over the last, starting five years ago. And I said to myself, I was the, I was the, literally the first person to write a book on the new world of how to reach people on the web using marketing. I, I, I wrote the first book on this topic and, and I need to be among the first people to begin talking about what's next. So I started having conversations with my daughter, Reiko. She's 26 years old now. So she was 21 years old at the time, mm-hmm. um, finishing up um, a neuroscience degree at Columbia University at the time. And I said, Reiko, what is it with the crazy thing that I love to do to go to rock concerts? I've been to 790 rock concerts. I actually have a spreadsheet with all the bands I've seen. I've been, seen <laughs> the Grateful Dead 75 times. And I said, yeah. you know, I said, I'm so, I dig so deep into this fandom. And she said, I know, Daddy, I, I'm so into Harry Potter. Not only have I read all of the books multiple times and seen the movies, but I just finished a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Drake Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. And I put it on a fan fiction site and thousands of people have read it and hundreds of people have commented on it. I have dug deep into Harry Potter and every year I go to Comic-Con, I get dressed up with my friends. (laughs) You know, what is it with us? Are we crazy? And so we began to research this idea of fandom. What makes somebody like me go to 75 Grateful Dead concerts? What makes my daughter spend a year of her life writing an entire alternative ending book to the Harry Potter series to give away for free? Um, yeah. what, what makes any of us dig into the things that we're passionate about? And then that turned into a book project. Um, the title ultimately, which by the way, took us a long time to come up with, with but the title ultimately became um, Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans. And our friend mm-hmm. Tony Robbins wrote the forward to the book. Um, but we, we then spent three years researching. We talked to neuroscientists. We talked to people who have built fan, um, huge fan bases, whether they're musicians or companies. And then we looked into the elements of how and why people become fans of something as well as how companies 
and people can develop fandoms. Um, and so excited to have done it with my daughter because clearly a different generation. She's my daughter, clearly um, a different gender being a woman. Um, she's mixed race um, and she <laughs> has this neuroscience background. So she comes at it from a scientific perspective. She's finishing up her medical school um, degree now and just about to start her residency program uh, early next year. And so um she has a very, very, very different take on fandom being uh, a millennial mixed race woman compared who loves Harry Potter compared to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is a 50 something year old white man who likes the Grateful Dead. So we were right. able to collaborate in a really cool way. So, um, so then, it, you know, with social media, which, which everyone has access to, what are some best practice? Like how does someone create fans as opposed to just followers. So like I could, I could come across an account like eh, I'm moderately interested in what they have to say. Uh, how do, yeah. What, what is that life cycle then? And, and is it, is it come down to the type of content that we share? How do we enroll people into our, into our purpose is I, I would assume that would be part of it as well. There's a number of different elements we identified, but the one I find the most fascinating um, that uh, is important for both face-to-face as well as online connection is um, it comes from neuroscience and it's the science of proximity. And Mm. so um, um, this is a really important one uh, because it's something that every single person um, can do. Uh, it's something that um, is really easy. And, and, and here's the basic neuroscience behind it. It turns out that all humans are hardwired to be conscious of the other humans around us. It's non-negotiable. It is in our deep dark brain from millennia ago. Um, It is hardwired into us. So um, uh, a neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall about 60 years ago pioneered what he called the zones of influence or the zones of proximity. There's four of them that he identified. So Reiko and I, my daughter and I have expanded this concept in a couple of different ways. And it goes like this. So the first zone is any, anybody who's more than 20 feet away from you. Mm-hmm. Those people, our brains are conscious of, but we're not really too worried about. Anybody who gets within 20 feet roughly of us um, up to about four feet, that's called the social zone. So that's wow. when you walk into a room. When you walk into a room, the people around you are in your social zone. And those people, our brains begin to track. Again, we cannot help it. It's hardwired into our brains, neuroscience. We begin to track those people. What we want to know are these people friends or foes or possible mates. That's what we're, mm-hmm. our, brain, that's what our <laughs> brain is telling us. And, um, and we can't help it. Then um, you've got the, um, uh, the personal zone, which is um, between about four feet and a foot and a half. That's cocktail party distance. And then so you said four feet to a foot and a, a half. Foot and a half. Right. And then anything closer than a foot and a half is called um, intimate space. That's only used for very close personal friends or family yeah. members. Doesn't really uh, doesn't really count for uh, for working um, uh, on fandom. And then. 
And then, um, so what we humans do is, um, is there is no question that the closer you get to somebody, the more powerful the shared human emotions. So hmm. if you're in a situation where there's fear related, let's say you get into a crowded elevator or even an elevator with just one other person. You're now in the social or personal space of people you don't know. That's why you feel uncomfortable. Or if you go into a cocktail party, you see some friends and you go over there, you have incredibly powerful emotions going on, positive emotions, um, because the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the shared emotions. So that's an important concept when thinking about how you build fans, because the more you can bring people in proximity with like-minded people, the more fans you're going to develop. So what does that mean? That means if you can host events and bring people together, that's incredibly powerful. If you can meet customers one-on-one, that's incredibly powerful. If you can do a tour of your customers' offices or bring them to your office, that's incredibly powerful. But it goes even deeper because I'm getting to your question, which you talked asked about social media. It goes even and further, because of something, a more neuroscience called, I hope I'm not geeking out too much on neuroscience, um, um, called mirror I'm digging it. <laughs> called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are the part of your brain that fire when you see somebody doing it as if you were doing it yourself. So the uh, way that this interesting concept works is if I do something, my brain fires. You know, I eat something, drink something, see something. But If you see me do something, your brain can fire as well. So here's an example. If I take a bite of a lemon, oh my gosh, I can feel it instantly. It makes my face scrunch up. My eyes close. My mouth immediately begins to water. My mouth sort of puckers up a little bit. It is a, a lemon is an incredibly powerful thing to bite into. Even thinking about it, I'm I'm experiencing some of those feelings. That's because of mirror neurons. This is why when you um, see someone on television frequently, you feel you know them, or why you might feel sad or happy or cry at a movie because of mirror neurons firing. It's as if you're experiencing it yourself. So what that means for us in developing authority, for example, um, or developing fans, for example, using an online tool, is that the more video you can use and the more images you can use of people, yourself, your employees, your customers, your partners, where they're framed such that you're in their personal space, so within a foot and a half to four Uh feet, the better. This is fascinating, right? Fascinating. So, so this is why if you do a webinar, having yourself on camera is way more powerful than not being on camera. Oh, yes. This is why people's social feeds very frequently have way more engagement around photos where it's as if the photo you're looking at, you're in somebody's personal social space. As opposed to way off in the distance. Right. As opposed to way off in the distance or as opposed to no people in it at all. Because again, um, 
the idea of proximity, the closer you are to somebody, the more powerful the shared emotions and the idea mm-hmm. of mirror neurons that you don't even have to be physically close to someone if they feel as though you are because of something virtual. So a little bit of geeking out, I know about the neuroscience aspects of it, but we found this to be one of the most powerful ways to build fans. Now, mm-hmm. you and I have both been to a Tony Robbins event. Um, I've actually spoken. You, you've been to a few more. I've been, I've been <laughs> and, to, and I think you had a different seat than okay. I did. <laughs> I, I, I was on stage. I, I've, I've, I've spoken, at, I've spoken for, at Tony Robbins Business Mastery events for five years. Amazing. But you've been to Tony Robbins events. Now, one thing that Tony does, I also do but very few speakers do. I do it every single speech I deliver. Tony does it every single uh, event he ever hosts. And that is walk into the audience. Yeah. And be, oh. phys- and be physically close to, in the personal space of some of the audience members. Now you remember yeah. that he does that a lot, you know, he does that. Yeah, a lot. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and he may shake someone's hand. He may talk to somebody one-on-one. He may put his hand on someone's shoulder. What he's doing is he's doing what I just talked about. It's close physical proximity, which is a very powerful shared emotion between Tony and one other person, or as he walks around a handful of people. But because Mm. he broadcasts himself on video for all of the audience to see, even if you're in the back row and you see Tony approach somebody in the front row, have a conversation with that person, him or her, maybe put their hand on his hand on their shoulder, maybe, um, you know, look into their eyes, you seeing that on camera, because of the power of mirror neurons, you believe that you are having the same, um, uh, you are having the same conversation with Tony as that other person is. And that's incredibly powerful. And I've used that technique since I learned this technique through another um, neuroscientist named Nick Morgan, who taught me this technique. Uh, and we quote him in the book too. Um, uh, Nick shared this idea with me. I, my speeches have become way more powerful. I get more standing ovations. I get more great reviews of my speeches because I go into the audience yeah. for a brief period of time and it's on camera. So everyone thinks I'm talking directly to them. Talk about authority. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about building fans and right. it's such it's such a simple technique that almost nobody uses because they're they are staying in the public space of their audience by being on the stage which is what most people yeah ever leaving you know stage. what what a great analogy too then to think about that in in how can we do that in social and it's, i think it's really shaping what we want to do we want to do less broadcasting on social uh and more you know feeling like you know you know i'm holding the camera right here and we're having this you know intimate conversation and i'm telling you how i'm feeling and um I, I can see how we can implement more of that as opposed to, you know, inspirational quotes are great, but I, th- what would, you know, how about, I think would be more powerful is, okay, here's the quote, but you know, let's like, Hey, it's just you and me right here. Let's, right, right. let's talk about, you know, how I fail at this all the time, which brings me uh, David to my next question. Um, in terms of building a fan base, I heard this and I'd love your perspective on it. Um, is that, 
you know, you can share your attractive character and that's good for maybe attracting people to you, but uh, that if it's just the attractive character, that it's kind of, you do that to attract people to you, but if you want engage people to engage with you, you know, share your vulnerabilities, share your imperfections, uh, and share your humanness on a regular basis. What's, what's your take on that? So, um, I think all of those are elements and we, um, in, in the book, we have actually 10 different points that we talked about. One, we just spent, you know, 15 minutes on one of them, which is the whole idea of proximity. Um, Another point that we talked about, which is what you alluded to, um, is the idea of making sure that you're always telling the truth and that you're always um, being transparent and authentic. So that's that's another element. Um, But there's something kind of hidden in the question you asked me, which you may not have thought of, which we found to be really, really important and really, really powerful. And that is being able to let go of your message, being Mm -hmm. able to let go of your ideas. And here's what I mean by that. Um, So many organizations, especially people like us who are building authority, people like us who are um, thought leaders in some way, feel as though our ideas are really important and 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 they are but mm-hmm. we need to let people take our ideas and morph them into something else that then they can feel a part of rather than us controlling that message we should allow people to morph it and transform it so um um, my daughter Reiko and I in our book Fanocracy identified two different types of fandom. There's what we call curative fandom and what we call transformative fandom. And it gets at this particular idea. So the curative fandom is what you talk, we talked about briefly earlier, quotes. You know, you, you put out quotes, you're actually curating a series of quotes. Transformative fandom is when you actually transform those things into something else. So let me give you a couple of examples of curative versus transformative. In the case of major, in the case of baseball, People who love Major League Baseball statistics, that's curative fandom. You know, it's like the batting averages and whatnot and Mm -hmm. so forth. However, um, fantasy baseball is transformative of Mm -hmm. Major League Baseball into something else. Here's another example. Uh, There's the book Hamilton which is the facts about Alexander yeah. Hamilton, the cure, you know where I'm going with this, the curated fandom, the transformative fandom is Hamilton, the play, the a race bent retelling of the Hamilton story in rap, a transformative version of the same thing. Neither is right nor wrong. Neither is better or worse than the other. They're just different. The challenge we all have is encouraging people to do the transformative type of fandom. And it turns out many companies don't. They try to lock things down. An example of that is Adobe. So Adobe makes Photoshop software. My daughter loves to do um, uh, create art using Photoshop, and she's really into uh, communicating with other fans of doing art with Photoshop on blogs and through social networks. And everybody laughs at Adobe 
on those those um, networks because they try to control the way people talk about Photoshop software. Uh-huh. They 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 say to their fans, "You may not say that you photoshopped something. That's incorrect. You're not allowed to do that. You must mm. say the image was manipulated by Adobe." trademark R, Photoshop trademark R software. Wow. And they and and my daughter and her friends laugh at Adobe. It's like this is ridiculous. Here we are, yeah. your fans. Here we are talking about how we use your product. And you tell us that that is not how you want us to talk about you. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So so I um so getting at your question is I think that um, a great way to build followers, to build fans, to get people to engage is to give them permission to change and morph and transform your work into something new. I personally did that with newsjacking, which we talked about earlier. Many people in my position would have done something different with newsjacking. And I got advice. I I asked a couple of hundred people advice before I launched this. 99% of them told me to do the opposite of what I did. Everyone says I should, everyone said I should trademark newsjacking and own it as my thing and not allow other people to use the word that uh, use that concept. I said, no, I made it freely available. I own the URL but I made it freely available. Now there's other people who have written books with the title Newsjacking. There's people yeah. who blog about Newsjacking. There's people who use the Newsjacking. <laughs> Including yours truly. <laughs> yeah. There's people who use the Newsjacking hashtag all the time. Um, yeah. But, but I'm the guy who invented it. If someone Googles it, I come up at the top of the search results. But yeah. because I let people transform my idea into something else, it exploded and it's now in the Oxford English Dictionary. Had I not done that and I had said, no, this is mine, there's a trademark against it, you can't use it, it would have died a death. Now, something tells me you picked up a few things on that from Jerry Garcia. Yes, you are very, <laughs> you are very so perceptive. Dead, very, very well known for, uh, you know, in a world where, you know, security is sweeping the audience, you know, looking for anyone that might be taking a picture or a video, uh, it, you know, and, and again, I've, I've never attended a dead show. Um, help me understand uh, what, what the Grateful Dead did that was so revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely revolutionary. Another another one of my books, by the way, is called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. So I dug mm-hmm. in deep into this topic. I wrote that book, co-wrote that book with Brian Halligan, who's the CEO of HubSpot, and Bill Walton, the NBA Basketball Hall of Famer, wrote the forward to that book. Bill Walton has Bill Walton has seen the Grateful Dead eight hundred and fifty times, if you can. <laughs> and if you've ever seen Bill on a, doing a um, commentary on basketball, he can't talk for more than ten minutes without saying the Grateful Dead. Uh, anyway, <laughs> what the Grateful Dead did, which is completely different than every other band, is they allowed fans to bring recording gear into the concerts. Initially, um, they just let it let it go rather than try to police it. But then they realized that because so many people were taping shows and they had microphones sticking in the air, they were bothering other people. So they created a oh. taper section. 
And the taper section was located right behind the soundboard. Um, so you know, Grateful Dead, um, uh, towards the end of their career, were playing stadiums, big, big events, yeah. um, or basketball arenas. So behind the soundboard, there might be 100 people who, were, who they actually sold taper tickets to. And then they wow. could set up their recording gear. Now, the, the, the band said, please record the, sound, the music, and then you can give away the tape. And, and in the beginning, it was cassette tapes, of course. Then it became yeah. MP3 files. But you can give away the tapes. You can trade the tapes with other people. You just can't sell them. Yeah. And, um, and they were the only band that did that um, in the beginning. Other bands then picked up on it. But what was interesting was that fans recognize that every Grateful Dead concert is different. The set list is different. The way they played each song was mm. different. Um, they did something like 3,000 shows in their career. They never once repeated the same type of show. And so therefore people wanted to listen to the different shows. And then they wanted, like me, wanted to go see a, a bunch of different shows. So I've been to something like 75 uh, Grateful Dead shows. Um, I mentioned Bill Walton, 850, but um, they, re they recognized if they let people record the concerts, they're going to make up the revenue in terms of ticket sales. Uh, and so that was a really clever thing for them to do. And it built in a massive, massive fan base. So that's actually a chapter in fanocracy is we, yeah. call, we called it give more than you have to. Right. Um, give things away. And one real simple manifestation in the world of, of digital marketing is so many digital marketers put squeeze pages around. Content. Yes. You know, they require that the only way you can get their white paper or their ebook is to give an email address. But that's actually putting up an adversarial relationship with somebody because you're demanding something of them before you give something in return. It's a very yeah. adversarial relationship. So in, in, in fanocracy, we highly recommend that you do what the Grateful Dead did is and just give the content away. No expectation of anything in return. Give that white paper away completely free. No email required, completely free. What will happen is you'll get way more downloads of it but then inside the paper, you can have another offer where maybe you do require uh, some kind of registration. But then it's even more powerful because people have already read your stuff. And then if they want you want to register for something after that, it's an even more powerful lead. So um, lots of really cool ideas around how to build fans. And some of yeah. them uh, actually came from Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea. And so, um, you know, another thing too, you know, it's, it was really interesting. I, I think that 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 side of marketing, I hope it's dying off. Uh, you know, where everything is gated. And you know, I, I remember I had one conversation with a gentleman, and he was selling a some three hundred dollar program that teaches you how to write a book in twenty four hours. I said, great, let's talk about it. how do you do it. He goes, well, I can't tell you because then people won't want to buy it. Yeah. I'm like, brother, you are in the wrong room. <laughs> yeah, no, it's exactly right. Now, there still is an, an enormous amount of that going on. Um, mm -hmm. There's still millions of people who are doing that form of marketing. Um, the, I believe the majority of B, B2B companies still market that way because that's how, yeah. that's how and I, I started as a B2B marketer. That's how B2B marketing has evolved. 
Um, and, you know, it's a historical accident that the whole white paper thing requires registration because yeah. uh, prior to the ability to send a white paper electronically that you had to physically mail it. So you had to get somebody's physical mailing address in order to get a white paper. Oh, right. But then marketers said, oh, now we're in the web. We got to do the same thing. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> you can huh. do anything you want. You can make it completely free. And um, so I've talked with marketers who have done some A-B testing, and it turns out that when you remove the requirement for an email address, you can have as many as 50 times the number of downloads. So you have to do the calculation. Okay, the calculation becomes, okay, so if I, I maybe I got 2,000 people to give me an email over the course of a year just because they wanted my white paper, not because they're interested right. in my company, but because they wanted my white paper. Uh, and they probably even gave me a fake email address anyway just to get it. Mm -hmm. And then, or 100,000 people exposed to your ideas. I mean, yeah. the difference is striking in terms of, what's more powerful to build fans and people who might eventually want to do business with you is to make it free. Don't try to wow. coerce them into something using an adversarial relationship. Think about it from a sales perspective too. If they are the ones that are saying, if they're the ones that are always in a relationship advancing the, the, you know, moving the, the, the puck forward, you know, they're the ones that are saying, yes, yes, yes. You, you know, kind of develop that pattern of yeses and all you're doing is just, you know, giving it available and, and they'll, they'll get off the elevator if they need to get off the elevator. But you're, you're absolutely right. When I go to a website, um, say it's a SaaS product, I see this a lot. If they don't, and I click on pricing and all it is is a contact form, I assume I can't afford it. <laughs> yeah. or, or you assume that you have to negotiate for it, which is not yes, fun at all. It's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. No, I don't want to negotiate. I hate it. You <laughs> know? Tell me how much the freaking car is and I'll figure yes. out whether I want to buy it or not. I'm like, I don't want to like have you talk to your manager and all that BS. Yeah. That's, I mean, some people might like that, but that's not the way I do business. So I, yeah, you know, you're for absolutely right. You know, for our agency friends that are listening, you know, try it out. See what happens if you abandon the, I mean, if you can. I mean, it's, you know, for us, you know, I think we've, you know, we've, we've absolutely productized a few services that were traditionally in the role of, okay, I got to write up this uh, contract and all this other stuff. You know, we just, our prices are right on the site. They're like, this is what it is. It's and there's no contract. It's month to month. If we don't earn, you know, it's. A, I, I felt like that. Uh, it, I'll tell you, it's it's a lot easier to sell when when yeah. when we do it that way. Uh, and I, I hope other agencies will follow suit with that if they can, because right. uh, right, right, right. I think it just makes things a lot easier. People jump on the phone; they already know everything. And so at that point, just you know, answer their final questions before they you know pull the trigger on it. That's right. That's right. And, you know, there, there's always, there's always room to experiment. Um, and, you know, you can try other things. But what we're talking about here is how do you build fans? Fans are people who will be with you in the long run. Fans mm -hmm. will be people who will support you even if you screw up. Fans will be people who will tell about how great you are to their friends. And ultimately, what I love about this concept of fandom is that people are even willing to share your company's logo by wearing the t-shirt or wearing the hat yeah. or putting the sticker on a computer. 
And, uh, you know, I interviewed, a, we interviewed a bunch of people who have started B2B companies even, where they've become so popular with their fans that their fans are eager to put a sticker on their computer or eager to wear a t-shirt. I had an opportunity to spend a half day with the head of NASA, top guy at NASA, Jim Bridenstine. Um, I wrote a book called Marketing the Moon. It's about the marketing aspects of the Apollo Lunar Program. That was wow. turned into a PBS miniseries called Chasing the Moon that came out in July 2019, um, hmm. three-part three miniseries, um, which I was also a producer on. And so Jim Bridenstine said, well, this is the dude that, that wrote the book Marketing the Moon. If we're going to go back to the moon, I should talk to him. So I ended up having a, a half day with him in, in Washington D and his team in Washington, D.C., which is fabulous. Uh, and I said to him, Jim, you, NASA has 45 million Twitter, uh, Instagram followers, people all over the world. You can't go into any city on the planet without seeing people wearing NASA t-shirts. Yep. People put NASA stickers on their computer and on their car. You have tens of millions of fans and you're a government agency. <laughs> so, you know, the idea, I, this idea of fandom of I, what I call a fanocracy is just, to me, it's, it's so interesting. It's so powerful. And it's something that any one of us, uh, if there were people listening beside you and I talking, any one of us yeah. can, uh, can, can do, can achieve, we can develop fans of our work, of our business, of our company, of our products, of the way we do business. It's a great way to wrap up the conversation. I hear the helicopter blades whirring above us, so we need to, we need to fly you out of here. So, so David Meerman Scott, again, thank you so much. I, congratulations. You know, again, I, I've got it on, I've had it on pre-order since uh, I, the moment you announced it. Uh, and, and I can't wait to uh, read the whole thing. Uh, fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans. Absolutely written for our time. Uh, I, again, I think this is a transformative topic uh, and it's one that marketers better understand uh, because consumers, it's a different ball game for them today. They're, they have different expectations. And if marketers are, you know, playing by the old rules, it's going to, you're making it tough on yourself. Thanks, Josh. I really appreciate you having me on. It's a really fun conversation. So, ow. as it turns out, ow. I was laying in an anthill. Ugh. I am allergic to ants, ow. and the bites are rapidly swelling. So, if you ow, enjoyed that, then please ow, subscribe to this podcast. Ow, ow. If you want more ways to spy on Josh, go to upmyinfluence.com. Ow, ow. I'm Morse code. Over and out. <laughs>